Oh man, we could have oh, used yeah. a real narrator. Like this was 
redonkulous. Like, there was no real narrator, and instead it was just like we were expected to know all these things from the beginning. Apparently there's this king who was sealed in the Black Cauldron, but then the Black Cauldron, whosoever possesses it, can summon an army of the undead, so zombies. Okay, but they can't summon the army of the undead. They have to have dead bodies to throw into it. Well, they don't say that at the beginning. It is one of those Cliff Notes things. It's just like, you're expected to know this, and here's a pig cottage. Man, we meet Taryn and Dubin and Hedrin. Hedrin? Henwin is the name of a sexy pig. Okay, I'm just going to say, from this point forward, everybody's names are fluid, and they will change throughout the entire movie, because everyone has accents, and then stops having accents, and then has accents again, and it is a mess from start to finish. If there are any diehard Black Cauldron fans out there, one, I would say, please turn this off right away, because we're about to rip into this, and two, we're also very sorry, because if you're, like, shaking your fist being like, his name is Henwin of... The Pardane or something uh, that we don't get right. Sorry, we're going to get it wrong. One of the main characters, we're pretty sure his name is Googie. Let's get back into the movie. They don't explicitly say what the relationship is between Dubin and Taryn, but I guess he's sort of an apprentice. You don't know if they're related, although they definitely aren't if they're just like calling each other on a first name basis. And so for no reason at all, Dubin is reading a scroll about the Horned King and then he just gets it into his brain of saying like, oh, well, go go feed the pig with this porridge that I've been making. Well, they made the porridge specifically for the pig. Dubin's like, oh, that's Hedwin's breakfast because the cat wants to eat some. And he's like, no, you can't have any of that. And so then he makes a bowl. He sends it with Taryn to go give it to Hedwig. And the cat's just like, hmm. And then Dubin's like, oh, look, there's enough at the bottom for you. You get to eat today, too. But he doesn't even like it. Like, he takes a bite of it, and he's just like, blah. Then Henwin gets her portion, and she just goes, blah, and, like, has to choke it down. Well, because I think Taryn had burned it because he was too busy daydreaming about being a famous knight or something. Taryn is talking to Henwin, and he's saying, I'm not going to be a pig farmer. I'm going to be a big warrior one day. And this is where I realized that this is probably where the, the film could have been better, is that the, in any other kind of Disney movie that came out in the earlier years or in the later years, this would be where Taryn has a song where he sings about his hopes and his dreams, his I want song, his part of your world or his somewhere over the rainbow. But he doesn't. Instead, he just starts hitting the animals with sticks. You think a song could have saved this movie? I think it could have. I think there are many points in this. By the way, <clears throat> as, you, as we said, there are no songs in this at all. And this is the first Disney movie that does not have any songs. I mean, I don't see how a song could have saved any of this. I think it could have helped it. It He could have have sang a song while beating the animals. Like, that would have been fine. But then we would have just had a musical number to him beating animals. But luckily they fight back and he ends up in the mud. And we start to discover that Henwin is actually a magical animal that drinks and makes predictions about the future well because taryn goes to give hedwing a bath and then all of a sudden during the bath she hears like this music and freaks out to which you were just like oh she's an elsa pig because literally it was like ah (laughs) yeah it sounded like the summoning music from frozen 2 yes it was so crazy like it did it actually sounded like that too and it was like is she hearing her mom sing to her like (laughs) 
Dubin explains this is because Henwen is a special pig, which is probably the reason why they have a pig farm with only one pig. And <laughs> I didn't even realize until you said that that duh, like the whole time they're like, "Oh, this is our pig farm. You're a pig farmer. I'm an assistant pig farmer. They have one pig." I didn't even realize that. They have one stupid pig this whole time, and they're like, "This is our pig farm." I mean, later on in the movie, Taryn is even saying, "Why, why, why do I have dreams of being a warrior? I'm just a pig boy." Like, he yes. calls himself Pig Boy. Oh, my God, I didn't even realize that. He's a one pig boy. Yeah, he's a one pig boy. Anyway, Dubin brings Taryn and Hedwig in, and he's like, oh, I never told you this, and you can't tell anybody, but Hedwig has special powers, and he sets the pig down in front of a glass of water, well, a bowl of water. It's time he, for a pig seance. Basically, and he's like, says this like magical spell where he's like, uh, bake and bake and be real true, bake and bake and I love you. And then Hedwin is able to like read the future and basically like from her snout, you can see that the like Thorn King is gonna find the cauldron and release an army of dead people. Also, during this, Hen- Henwin's eyes turn from blue to red, which, by the way, I know I said earlier, sexy pig. It's not because something is woken in me. It's that they give Henwin these luscious blue eyes and these, like, big eyelashes that she's batting all the time. But Dubin is upset by this whole prophecy, and now he's saying, okay, here's the plan, and he just, like, grabs a handkerchief, and he makes this bindle with, like, one apple and one loaf of bread, and he tells Taryn... I need you to take the pig, go find a cottage at the edge of the woods, and just hide until oh, I come get you. The reason they have to hide, I forgot about this, is because in the prophecy, they see that the horned king knows about Harbin. So then Taryn's like, yay, this is my quest. This is what I've been wishing for. I'm going to do it well. It's going to be awesome. He immediately loses the pig. We flash to the spooky castle, and there's thunder and... <laughs> Oh, wait, we're back to our Foley artist. Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's some good castle thunder there. Thank you. We see bits and pieces like the back of someone's head, and he's got horns, obviously, the horned king. Then you see his feet walking. It takes a long time. He's just walking. He almost has those slippers like from the hospital with the little grippies on the bottom, and he's like learning how to walk in them. Like it's his first couple steps. And I want to know, he's got this big fur jacket on. The horns, you never see them outside of the hood. I think they're on the hood. I don't think those are his horns. They eventually show his face, and it's Skeletor. So apparently we are in the He-Man universe. Okay, but then he also goes... He is Darth Vader, the Skeleton King. That's basically, yes. He's Skeletor. Darth Skeletor, the Skeleton King. I mean, it kind of makes sense because this came out after Star Wars and Lord of the Rings was a well-known thing. And so he's also kind of like the villain in that. And and it's supposed to be this amalgamation, I think, of all of these fantasy evil sorcerers. But he just looks like Skeletor because he's wearing a hood. He's in this like Castle Grayskull kind of thing. Just, I'm evil. He has a throne room that's full of skeletons (laughs) of... Soldiers. Like at first, when they introduce him, you just see like broken weapons on the floor, but then you and then you see bones, and then you see he's got piles and piles of them. Like he's Scrooge McDuck, but he collects bones instead of money. Okay, but they're not all bones. Some of them are in different like levels of like decay. decay. Like they're just dead bodies everywhere, and you're just like, what the heck am I looking at? 
He's walking around these corpses and he's talking to them. And I think it's supposed to be this thing of like, soon your time will come. And he says, you will be my cauldron born. But both of us looked at each other and said, I totally thought he was going to say, you will be my cauldron boys. Like we both started laughing. We're like, these are my cauldron boys. <laughs> I got my real boys, got my cauldron boys, got a Mountain Dew, and I'm good. <laughs> and then we quickly cut to Taryn, and then he immediately loses the pig. <laughs> it takes a yeah. split second. And he's like, oh, don't worry, I'm going to save you. Oh, crap. And he's gone. The pig is gone. Because he looks in the pond and he sees this vision. I thought maybe it was because the pig was drinking and he saw something where it's him in like golden armor saying like, my name's Taryn and I'm the greatest warrior in the land. And you see him. He's just like, yeah, that'd be great. Pig? Pig? Ah, no. I'm a dunce. And he goes running off. So he pulls an apple out of his jacket and he's like, I'm an entice Hoover with a jacket. And And? No, with a jacket. (laughs) With a jacket. Like he's a matador. <laughs> but no, with an apple. <laughs> but instead, we get Jar Jar Binks. He is pounced by a mustachioed monkey dog sloth hybrid that talks like Jar Jar Binks. And he's like, You're gonna be my friend. Oh, and his name is Googie. It might not be, but he's very bad at pronouncing his name, and so is Taryn. And so Googie steals the apple and Taryn's like, you selfish, terrible creature, and just literally berates him from start to finish from this entire movie. They find the pig together, but then, uh-oh, pterodactyls no, come they're, flying in? they're dragons. I know, but they're like pterodactyl-sized. And then I think eventually somebody calls them griffins, but they don't look like griffins either. Oh, yeah, the Thorn King's like, my griffins. And I was like, have you seen a griffin? I haven't seen a griffin. <laughs> No, has he seen a griffin? Not have you seen a griffin? Oh, yeah. I thought you were saying in the movie. I was like, no, I haven't. I have not. I have not. No, ma'am. Oh, I thought maybe you were just like, <laughs> no, I've never seen a griffin in real life. Yeah, no one has. <laughs> yeah, don't be an idiot. Griffins don't exist, Bruno. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> they chase after the dragons, griffins, pterodactyls, and they go to the top of a cliff and they see they're flying the pig to the spooky castle. Taryn yells at dumb Googie and says, you're selfish and you, you're you no help to me. And you want an apple? Here's an apple. And he just throws an apple at him and then he just leaves and goes, bye. I'm going to go do this myself. Yeah, Taryn's just like, you won't help me. And it's like, you've been a jerk from start to finish. I wouldn't help you either, turd boy. That's what his name should be. Oh, I got him. Turd boy. We fast forward to... Taryn climbing the castle and... Well, because it's like a hundred miles away and then all of a sudden he's there. (laughs) That's the whole journey. And so he comes upon a feast that's being had by all these brutish fellows. One imp who's, I think, is his name Creeper? I think his name is Creeper, but I don't know if that was somebody just like insulting him. Like, get away, Creeper. It's like a lot of guards drinking a lot of beer and then like a couple goblins. And one of the goblins is being beat to crap. Like anytime he's near anyone. And then during this big feast that's happening, who shows up but Fat Esmeralda? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This movie was, like, very boobalicious. Like, multiple characters had, like, breasts that were bigger than most characters' heads. This rotund belly dancer jumps onto one of the tables and kicks all the drinks off and starts, like, doing a belly dance. And she has the same exact color scheme of Esmeralda from The Hunchback of Notre Dame like 20 years early. Yeah. 
but she has like the same outfit and she's like dancing like with a tambourine. I was like, oh my gosh, they got an overweight Esmeralda. <laughs> whatever she did, whatever diet she was on, it worked for her. Well, it's like when you order like a princess for your birthday party and they get there and a couple of their meth teeth are missing. <laughs> or when you like order a prom dress online. Okay, those are my favorite <laughs> holes to fall down when people are like, look at these prom dresses we ordered online. <laughs> While this party's going on, we hear, and all of a sudden the party stops and the Thorn King shows up. And he walks in and Creeper, the goblin imp, starts like skittering about and grabs a tray and a cup and pours him a glass of... <gasps> Why you peer upon, upon the screen. screen. At first, he's like, the cup is overturned, so he's like pouring over the top of it. And then he's like, oh, sorry, sorry, my, my lord. And then he like turns it over and he brings it over to him. And the Horn King just starts like giving a speech. He's like, bring in the prisoner. And then he gets angry and like crushes the cup and wine just pours everywhere. Well, because he's a skeleton. Like, how is he going to drink it? It would be like that part in like Pirates of the Caribbean where the skeleton's drinking and you see it go through his ribcage. That would have been a great thing in this movie. <laughs> But, like, did you notice that every time the Thorn King shows up, there's this weird alien music? So, like, again, I think they were trying to make him, like, Darth Vader. Taryn is in the castle. Hendrin is in the castle. And then the Horn King's like, bring out the magic pig. And so they bring out the magic pig and they essentially... They're trying to force it to... To perform. And so they try to drown it in wine at first. And then the goblin's like, I'm going to burn you. Like, this movie is extremely violent. Like, there's moments when you see uh, Taryn get into a fight with one of the brutes in the castle. And you think it's going to be one of those things where it's like, oh, it's a Disney movie. So he's going to, like, duck and evade and, like, dive and get out of the way. But then the guy just full on slaps him across the face and knocks him to the floor. It's like, and he that even was goes brutal. Like, Ugh. <laughs> like, it's like a violent sound. They bring the pig out before the Thorn King, and the Thorn King's like, perform, and the pig doesn't perform, and then Taryn falls off a ledge, because he's just like, that's my pig, and then he falls down, and he's like, meh. And then they're telling Taryn, like, force your pig to do a seance thing, or otherwise we are going to kill him, and they bring him over to a chopping block, fresh blood dripping from it with a little head basket underneath it. It's dark. We were talking in one of the recent episodes about like, hey, is this the first time we've seen some blood? Now we've definitely seen blood because this is all over this thing. The Thorn King ends up seeing some of the future, but not all of the future because Terran spills wine on the Thorn King and he acts like he's been like sprayed with acid. For a second, you think it's like the Wicked Witch, I'm melting, but it's just more of like, oh, you've stained my clothes, buddy. Oh, <laughs> then I wrote... And his phone rang. Like, all of a sudden, there was this <laughs> really weird... I remember I remember that scene. So, Henwin gets away with Taryn's help, but then Taryn is captured. He's thrown into the dungeon, and he's, like, sitting there crying. Then all of a sudden, it sounds like a ringtone, like a cell phone, like this... And he looks up, and that's when Princess Alwini... Oh, I wrote Aoli. Alwini. This princess pops out of, like one of the floor stones, and she says, oh, I was trying to escape, and I went to the wrong place. It's kind of like the Count of Monte Cristo, and she says, oh, well, if you want to, you can come with me. I'm getting out of here. By the way, I have this floating orb with me, and that's the floating orb makes it like... The Horned King wanted my magical orb to help him find the Black Cauldron. Taryn obviously d decides to follow Princess Aeoli, and what do they find? 
but ovarian Jenga. Okay, so uh, <laughs> they walk into this one room and it's like a tomb. And the princess says, a burial chamber. And I heard ovarian Jenga because of her <laughs> accent. And I almost spilled my wine and just went, what? And he screams out ovarian Jenga, <laughs> which led me to be like... I haven't played that game. Like, I've played normal Jenga. What is ovarian Jenga? So they're trying to find their way through the ovarian Jenga, and there is a dead body covered in spider webs, and it's holding a sword. And Terrence just like, ooh, sword, that, that could be a pretty good thing. And he just takes it, to which the princess says, what are you doing with the sword? He's like, uh, and she says, well, did you just take that from that dead body? He says, well, he wasn't using it. That's our main character, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this idiot who's just like, oh, this dead body wasn't using it. So they start trying to make their escape. They find another man being tortured in one of the dungeon cells. I thought it was Dubin because he's a white-haired man with a big belly and a big nose. He looks exactly like it him. He did look exactly like him. But then they go up and they introduce themselves and he's like, oh, my name is, what is his name? Well, Fluta? I wrote- I wrote Gamlord of Gimli, but I don't think that's right, because then later on they were calling him, like, Flounder. I thought it was Fluta. So you see this guy, and he's tied up, and he has around his neck this harp that's hanging from a string. They start asking him questions, and anytime he lies, the harp breaks the string. And so you're thinking, ooh, that's going to come in handy at some point later. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Also, he makes no change to the story whatsoever. So he's dead weight, and he's just an extra person for them to talk to. But they free him anyway, and he comes along for the quest. The one part I did like about the dungeon scene was that um, Flounder is, like, hooked up to a torture device. And he's like, I must be the only minstrel in this place. And then you look across, and he's, like, hanging next to a dead body of a mariachi player. <laughs> like, he has, like, the hat and the outfit, like, but he's a skeleton, and he has, like, a, a guitar, like a like a Spanish guitar hanging around him. I totally missed that detail. But also, that sounds very specific. Like, maybe one of the animators just had, like, a vendetta against somebody from some nearby restaurant. <laughs> so, Taryn, Princess Aeoli, and the minstrel Flounder run off, and they run into a set of guards. But Taryn now has this magic sword. He doesn't actually have to do anything. The sword does everything itself. That's one thing I noticed. I've been watching a lot of video essays lately on YouTube that talk about, like, light motifs and musical cues and things like that that are like oh this is the hero's cue this is the love cue Taryn doesn't have a music cue but this sword does anytime he brings the sword out and the sword does everything for him there's this heroic like superman music that plays and it's like vastly different from any other music in this and so the hero theme goes to the sword only and then once like the sword is out of the story the theme never comes back it's only for the sword there is no reason for our hero to be there. The sword takes over, the sword fights the guard, and Terran laughs like a wiener. And this is the part that annoys me the most, is that when Terran wields the sword, the one time the sword isn't glowing, like it's his choice to do this, all he does is poke holes in a whole bunch of wine barrels and waste all of the wine. <laughs> so our hero wiener does nothing but waste wine. I even thought at one point that, well, maybe the sword is dependent on and on doing the will of whoever's holding it. But then there's another part later where it's like Taryn literally has no idea what to do. And the sword just jumps out 
and just starts destroying everything around him. Like, he doesn't even hold it, and he just sits there and claps, like, <laughs> Yeah, even when they get away, those dummies go to nowhere, and then they just sit around, and, like, Princess Aeoli is like, also, your pants, singer flounder, like, they still don't have the pig. Taryn's like, everyone needs to thank me for getting us out of there. And Princess Aeoli's like, well, it was kind of the sword, right? And he's like, you're a jerk! And they, like, fight about it. There's, like, a moment of just, like, girls rule and boys drool. Well, because Taryn's a waiter, and girls do rule and boys do drools. (laughs) Jar Jar Wilford Brimley comes back and says, like, I can lead you to the tracks of this pig. And so they follow it until it stops, and... They find this underwater cave and they find this whole fairy world where one of them, his name is Dory. Oh, I thought it was Doey. The names, well, they're Santa, all over. Well, Santa, Santa's in charge. I wrote Santa too. Oh, nice. So the king of the fairies introduces himself and he's like, hi, my name's Santa, which might as well be. He looks like Santa on his brick with like with his coat unbuttoned and his belly hanging out. So one of the things that like Santa says is that he's like, he asks, is there still burning and killing going on up there? Because this is like underground. And Flounder's like, yeah. And Santa's like, then we'll stay down here. Doey, why don't you take them where they need to go? And he says, why don't you lead them to where the pig is? Because huzzah, they've made it to where the pig is. And the pig comes running out of the catacombs and they've been reunited. And then they say, oh, we also know where the black cauldron is. So you can just send your pig home now. So they didn't actually need the pig to find out where the black cauldron was. They just had to chase the pig until it got them to the fairies that would fly them to the exact location. Santa tells Dory, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still in Morva. I wrote uvula. (laughs) It's close. It ends with the same letter. So one does not simply walk into Morva, uh, except they, I guess they are flown there. And there's a spooky hut there. It's a house made of eyeballs. Yeah, they walk in, there's just eyes everywhere. And they're like searching around and they're like, let me check the desk drawer. But there's still eyeballs everywhere. All of a sudden they open a door and all the frogs start jumping out. And that's what the eyeballs have been. Okay, but then like Doey is just like, that wasn't frogs, that was people. And it was like, what? I thought this would come around. Again, that's one of the reasons why this story doesn't work is that they set all these things of saying, well, maybe this will pay off. Like the frogs are actually people. This area is actually a village that was been turned into frogs in a marsh or something. No, they just run out. And then these three witches show up and say like, you let our frogs escape. So then they immediately turn the minstrel into a frog and stick him into the boobs of witch Esmeralda. Like it's the same body type as the dancer. I thought of these witches as the witches from Hocus Pocus. So the Kathy and Jimmy one has fallen in love with Fluta. And so while one of the witches keeps trying to turn him into a frog and then eat him, the fat one keeps trying to turn him human so she can marry him. And it's like this whole back and forth, kind of like the red and blue dress from Sleeping Beauty, except it's like, I'm going to eat him. No, I'm going to marry him. And then he ends up a frog in the big witch's cleavage and spends a while there. And meanwhile, he's stuck in there and he's just like... (gasps) And it's it's not like a quick cartoon gag where it's just like, whoop, and then he's there and then he's on. Like, he's like struggling and like pushing her boobs out to try to get out, but he can't. And she's like looking for him like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And it's like a couple minutes long and you're like, this is a couple minutes too long. So the fitness witch is in charge and they tell her they want the cauldron to which she sends out all of the cookery that they own. And that's where, again, the sword takes over and just cuts up all their cookery. 
Well, Taryn's just sitting there like, I don't know what to do. And he's just like, yay! <laughs> yay! Go sword! Go, go sword! sword <laughs> go sword! <laughs> and so then the witches see the sword. And they're like, that's a pretty good sword. And they start talking among themselves and say, you know what? I've got a plan. Let's trade them, the Black Cauldron, for the sword. And then one of them says, that doesn't make sense. We give them the cauldron. And they say, like, no, it makes sense because then we have both the cauldron and the sword. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense because you'd think, like, oh, then they'll steal it back with the sword. But they end up trading him the sword and the fitness witch. I keep calling the fitness witch. <laughs> she had a sweatband around her head and she was just like, ah, sweating to the oldies, like, the whole time. She had, like, a leotard on and she was just, like, clearly the one in charge because she was telling, like, the love struck, like, boob witch what to do. And so... They agree to trade the cauldron, the official black cauldron, for the sword. Taryn gives up the sword. They give him the black cauldron. Then all of the cauldrons start flying out of the house. And then the house itself starts flying off. Then everything is all flying away into the sky, including the witches. And then all of a sudden, the cauldron like erupts like a volcano from the ground. And then the witches just become cloud witches. What they say is in order to destroy the evil of the cauldron, someone has to willingly go in. And so then Googie was like, oh, Misa, go in the cauldron because he's Jar Jar Binks. And so then the, the witches were like, you can go in. Like he's standing at the lip of the cauldron. And they're like, but you'll never come out alive. <laughs> and so then he's like, well, I'm not going in. Like <laughs> Misa not going. That's what he said. So they end up just sitting there, just like, well, what do we do? We don't have a magic sword. And Taryn's all pissed because he's like, I traded my magic sword for this. And then while they're sitting there, Doey gets mad at them and leaves. And then the evil king shows up. Well, the pterodactyls have found them. And then all of the thugs show up and they have like a circle of swords being like, meow, 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 come with us. You're going back to the castle. So they go back to the castle, but now they also have the black cauldron. The Horn King comes in and he's like, how did you think you could outsmart me? So he has the cauldron and he puts a dead body into it. It starts emitting all of this green mist that then brings the undead army from the throne room to life. I also specifically wrote that the cauldron grows toes. Grows toes? Yeah, it was this weird, very short clip where the cauldron grows feet and toes. I did not notice that. And I didn't like it. When the skeletons start standing up, it's almost like you're watching a 3D movie without 3D glasses. I asked you. I even stopped and I said, is that on purpose? They are sort of like double exposed. But like triple exposed. Like there's three of them, but they're like in the same realm. Like if I trace them badly. Yeah, it looked like it was an accident, but then it flashes to something and it's totally normal. And then it keeps going back and forth and back and forth. But no, that's... That is how it was animated. They're marching off and the Horn King's like laughing maniacally. The little creeper boy is just like, this is your finest work yet. One of the little clips that I did find a little funny was that like Princess Aeoli had been talking about all the rats that were in the castle. And while the king is like throwing in the first dead body, creating this fog, waking up his undead army, you see Googie had escaped when all of the like guards attacked their group when they were by the cauldron. So Googie's sneaking back in and you see in this river that's under the castle, all of these rats like escaping. <laughs> well, Googie's here to save the day. Hooray. And he unties Taryn and that's when Taryn says, I'm going to be a big hero now, and I'm going to jump into the cauldron and stop all of this. And then Googie stops him. He's like, no, Misa, jump in first. And then he just jumps. And it's very violent. <laughs> yeah, like as the undead are walking across the moat, 
all of a sudden they start to collapse because Googie has like sacrificed himself and the sound they make while hitting the ground is like baloney hitting linoleum. <laughs> like it's a very specific sound. It's like <laughs> I just want to point out and this is kind of a mini fun fact here. The undead army is was one of the first things that had to be edited because when they did the original screenings of it, they were a lot more intense. Like, what? Like pieces of skin and muscle falling off of them. Now they just look like clean skeletons, but it used to be much more horrendous. And apparently during some of the screenings that they had, uh, mothers and their crying children were fleeing the theaters in the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Okay, I guess in today's standards, like it's not like that violent, but like putting myself back in this time, I was just like, nope. I think they were going for, because this is... 1985 so maybe they were going for like a Ghostbusters feel like a 1984 Ghostbusters where they're like oh see but kids love Ghostbusters and that's a little like dark and macabre but this does not have the fun of something like that so all of the skeletons start to baloney apart and the Thorn King gets super pissed and he starts to run back towards the cauldron and he sees Terra and he's like I'm gonna throw you in that's gonna restart all of this but Due to, like, wind or something, he trips. Taryn is holding onto some ring that's just on a castle's pillar, and then the king is trying to throw him inside. He actually takes Taryn, like, picks him up and throws him towards the cauldron, but then still he's the one that gets sucked in? I don't know. I got totally lost in what was happening here. Everyone did. The animators did. But the King Thorn gets sucked into the cauldron, and then the cauldron falls to hell and, like, takes the entire castle, including the dragons, with it. Well, except for one of the dragons. And the only reason we know one of the dragons makes it is because when all of the main characters, Taryn, Princess Aeoli, and flounder make it out then like as they're fleeing the goblins on the back of the dragon and he's like bye suckers and he like flips his butt at them or something it's like a gang sign in a butthole <laughs> <laughs> the castle's breaking apart and our heroes are trying to run out they run to an escape boat which looks like a tiny viking ship and they're just like get in this boat they ride the boat six feet and see oh no the gate's locked <laughs> <laughs> six feet in front of them and then Tara's just like I'll unlock it and he like dives into the water to, to like open the gate I don't even know how he does it I think the castle's just disintegrating and just pulls the gate off and they ride away and that's how they're able to escape as the castle explodes it explodes so big that they cut to a reaction shot of the rats that were escaping the castle which are now miles away watching this castle fall apart they were there just to show you how big the explosion was. Okay, but these rats also look crazy evil. Like, they're kind of like the rats in, like, Lady and the Tramp, where they have red eyes, but they're just like, that's a bad explosion. Yeah, like, they don't even, like, have, like, the cartoon Disney faces where, like, oh, my gosh, like, they look the realistic kind of just, like, meh. <laughs> they're like, meh. And then they keep going. What if that was Ratatouille's ancestors? Ooh, what if it was? What if they flee to France? Very well could be. So they escape and the castle's gone, which I guess now it was in the middle of a pond or a lake. And the cloud witches are just like, the cauldron has been satiated and now you don't need it anymore. So now we're going to take the cauldron. To which Fluta says, uh, 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 just like you said, we don't give anything away without a bargain. The buoy witch is like, I love a man that's in charge. Yeah, she says, I love a forceful man, which is gross. But the... <laughs> so... 
they they offer them the sword, the magic sword with its own theme song. Here, you can have the Superman sword. And that's the point where they're like, it's deserving of a great warrior. And then Taryn's just like, but I'm not a warrior. I'm a pig boy. I'd rather have Googie. Oh, my gosh. Do you know what I wrote at this point? What? Do you want to hear what I wrote? Please tell me. I wrote, Googie is back. They think he's dead. Yada, yada, yada. He's not, of course. <laughs> they give him Googie. And for a second, I thought it might be a thing where they were just like jerks about it. And it's like, you wanted Googie? Here's Googie. You never said alive. We and hoped he was dead. He's just this limp body and Taryn's holding him. And then all of a sudden, his like hand starts kind of going into like Taryn's vest saying like, must be munchies and snackies here somewhere. To which you're like, uh, back in the cauldron. <laughs> back in the cauldron. <laughs> and then when the princess comes up, then Googie's just like, I'm glad you're alive. And Googie forces their heads together, the princess and Taryn, and is like, now kiss. Yeah, he does that. <laughs> he just forces their so faces So then they together. kiss because, you know, they're forced to, as all good first kisses are. Forced by a, a weird mustache sloth. Well, I mean, that's how our first kiss was. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, we miss you, Scrunchy. You were a good friend. Scrunchy? That's the name of the sloth character you want to put into our lives? Okay, please. Give me a better name than Scrunchy. Schmousy. It's not too far away. Schmousy, your faces together. Yeah, just like that. Schmoochy. Schmoochy. Yeah, you guys want a schmoochy What too? if he's a weird, like, kissing sloth that just slowly moves from place to place, forcing people to kiss? I don't like this mental image. I really don't. Kiss me. Get away from me. No. no. Kiss me. Smoochie, stop it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You look so uncomfortable right now. I didn't think Smoochie would be coming back. So Taryn and Aeoli kiss. And the heroes walk off and become a silhouette that is actually the vision that the pig back home is having with Doobie. And he's like, great job, Doobie. You did everything right. Oh, yeah, I wrote, which hemlock sees in the water because the fairies return her to Dooger. Sure. <laughs> you're, you're ready to write your own mystery novel or that was, fantasy novel. <laughs> that was literally the last line of my notes. I and they go just... hand in hand to Astromal and get back the Derfluminal into the Markle. I cannot say that I am the biggest fan of fantasy, but this was like, poopsicle genre (laughs) this was bad from start to finish i can always appreciate fantasy when it translates well to a white audience where i'm just like okay like the people who don't read the books and aren't incorporated into the world if it's told well then you can get it like there are a lot of novels and a lot of movies out there that do fantasy very very well and one of them of course is uh star wars they introduce the characters They make it so that their identities and their names are well-known right off the bat. So you're not just like sitting there just being like, what What does any of this mean? Okay, but I think that this was like a sad attempt at Star Wars. Like they saw the first Star Wars and they're like, all right, cool. That took off. Let's do something like that. Because they tried to give certain characters songs. When the Thorn King would show up, it was like this weird alien whistle. And then even at the end of the movie, like... When the cauldron, like, finally showed up, they literally went, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) But as far as these things go, you've got to kind of be focused and and driven by a hero. And the hero in this was a wet noodle the entire time. I mean, and there is some argument to, like, Luke in Star Wars being a wiener for some of the first movie. 
But, like, Taryn was like, uh, we, ner. Like, there was no redeeming qualities. Whereas, like, I feel like Luke as a character learns. Taryn doesn't learn and continues to be a wiener. One of the greatest things of a hero's journey is they come to a point where they realize, oh my gosh, I've been training for this and I know this. Like the whole thing where Luke is like about to do the trench run. He's just like, I used to do this for fun all the time. I used to drive through canyons and like shoot romp rats. Shoot romp rats. The skill he inherently has comes in handy. And there were so many times in this where it's like these skills and these uh, magical items. At one point, I just turned to you and I said, okay, there's a magic pig. There's a magic orb. There's a magic harp. There's a magic sword. There's a magic cauldron. This is way too many magic things. Well, because none of them had points. Like, the magic orb did nothing the entire movie. The magic sword, however, did everything. But it was, like, even down to, like, the bad guy, King Thorn. He unleashes his dead army. They don't even make it off of the, like, drawbridge, right? And he's like, this is it. My plan is unfolding. What is your plan, you weird <laughs> horned man? You have said nothing. Like, there's no point to any of this. Well, you would have understood if you read the novels. Yeah, there are books. Apparently, Disney bought the rights to this book series back in, like, 1970 and just couldn't do anything with it for a long time. And so many of their creative people were like, okay, I think I know how to make it work. And then they couldn't. And they're like, oh, I think I know how to make it work. And they couldn't. But for some reason, this seemed to be the time where they were just like, it'll work this time. Not only that, but in the mid-2000s, Disney bought the rights again. Nobody knows why. No. <laughs> Disney. We, I know we don't have anybody listening who actually works for Disney, but please, please stop making this. It was so rough to watch. I was even saying through this, it's like, Disney doesn't want this to exist. Like, you don't see any things at Hot Topic that are like, ooh, here's a Black Cauldron backpack or anything like that. Nobody cares. And No one wanted this. And I feel like if Disney did actually, like, delete this from their repertoire, I think they'd be worried that people would then seek it out. They would just rather it just kind of sit there in obscurity in plain sight. Hey, Brenna, would you like some fun facts? I mean, it can't make this worse. Thanks. That's a real vote of confidence there. <laughs> Fun facts with Joe, Joe Payo. Well, as you said, the beginning didn't open like the past ones. And one of the big things was this is the first Disney movie that actually opened with the Walt Disney Pictures logo with the blue background and the castle outline. Oh. This was the first one. Also, this is the first Disney animated theatrical movie to receive a PG rating. Everything else has been G up to this point. Yeah, I can see why. This movie was violent. It was rough. There were people throwing axes a lot. There were swords that were just like stabbing things. The next movie to have a PG rating following this is Nightmare Before Christmas, but I feel like that one actually deserves it. Uh, I can't wait to watch that one. <laughs> this movie actually had to be edited down twice. This came out around the period of time when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out, and that one famously was going back and forth between being a PG and R-rated movie because it is very violent. Well, Steven Spielberg, with all his clout, was able to find a middle ground that became PG-13. Wait, so they created PG-13 for Indiana Jones? Yes. There was no PG-13 before that? There wasn't. There was only PG and R? Yes. No way. Yeah. Steven Spielberg said, like, well, yeah, this is intense for, like, kids. But if you're an older kid, like a teenager, this isn't that intense. Like, this is actually kind of cool. And this is something that you would ideally like. Huh. 
which it kind of does. It fits that. Gremlins does that too, where it's in that realm of like, it's a little too creepy for kids, but for teenagers, it's fine. Oh, that's my favorite Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) Mine is Die Hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's my grandma's favorite Christmas movie too. And so when this movie was being made and being reviewed by the MPAA, they were like, I think this is going to be a rated R. And so they had to re-edit it and be like, okay, that's kind of PG-13. And then they had to re-edit it again to make it PG. Again, there was a point where the undead army, they were very, very scary. I mean, it's very creepy when they first show up and they're like coming out of the water and coming straight towards camera. And like, I think it's implied that they actually kill the human minions. I mean, maybe that's why they had to do that thing where they triplicated their image because it made it less scary. Yeah, it looked more hokey. Yeah, like it almost was a thing where it's like, oh, well, I'm more focused on that than the fact that there's like dead flesh hanging off them. Here's another fun fact. A really quick one. This is Disney's uh, first film since Sleeping Beauty to be a box office bomb. We talked about that in Sleeping Beauty where it's like that didn't do too well. But this one, it's very obvious that it is not good. This movie was so bad. We had to stop so many times to take breaks. Yeah, we even had like a little dinner break in between because we were just like, I can't with this movie right now. So let's just kind of like step away and then step back in. I think we've established that um, if you want to do a fantasy novel, this is not the way to do it. But what what are some fantasy things that actually do work for you? I'd say one of my favorite fantasy novels that I've ever read was The Princess Bride. Okay. I love The Princess Bride. I've read that book. It is so much freaking fun. I don't consider that that same kind of fantasy. Well, it's kind of like a postmodern fantasy where it's a fantasy from the point of view of people who are sick of what fantasies normally do. So it's kind of a retelling of a fake fantasy. The movie is something different, but the book is like this thing of, I found all these manuscripts of this like story my grandfather told me, and I'm going to translate everything. But it's also kind of, you learn a lot about the author, like he's telling you a lot about himself and how he remembers the stories and how he came about translating it. Okay, but that's the greatest part is that none of that is true. Yeah. All of it is fake. So like the entire book. Oh my God, I love that book so much. Like, I think I told you to read it when we first started dating or I said did. like, did I tell you to read it or yeah, you'd already had, read it or I something? I read your copy of it. Oh yeah, I lent you my copy. Oh, no wonder we're married. But <laughs> I remember I read that book and at first I was like, oh my gosh, this book is based on a book. And then towards the end of the book, I realized, oh, like this is all like he's made all this up. To anyone who loves that movie, you need to read the book because there are certain scenes where it's like the fighting scene where they get to the top of the Cliffs of Insanity. They do the whole thing where they're like, well, I'm fighting with my non-dominant hand or whatever. That entire scene is made so much more clever and clear by the dialogue that's in the book that when you go to watch the movie, you're like, that's so smart. And you don't even get most of the jokes they're making in the movie unless you've read the book. So like another example of that is that at one point he's like talking about I think it was in regards to the Cliffs of Insanity he's saying like oh let me describe to you the Cliffs of Insanity and then he says like my grandfather spent 75 pages describing the Cliffs of Insanity I'm gonna spend one like it's like (laughs) this whole thing but then you realize like there wasn't there wasn't a grandfather like it's all just the book that you're reading it was fantastic Oh, another fantasy novel that I really love is Stardust by Neil Gaiman. (gasps) Oh, 
And I love that so, so much. Good. <laughs> I love that so much because it also dives into like numerology type things. How there's like the seven brothers, and each of them have like a name that is like having to do with like one through seven. Like the evil villain is Septimus. Like he's the seventh brother. All of that is so clever, and I love that so much. So I gotta say, I love the way that they turned Princess Bride from a book into a movie because I thought that was a really great translation. I loved the way they turned Stardust into a movie. I thought they did such a good job. And that movie did not get the recognition that I think it deserved. That was a solid, awesome movie. (laughs) Those are fantasy movies that actually work. This one does not. (laughs) We had to do this movie to get through everything. But, I mean, if you're morbidly curious to see a movie go completely off the rails due to executives and creative heads just struggling for control, this is the movie to watch for you. Because this is the first movie that was made under Disney when Michael Eisner became CEO and Jeffrey Katzenberg became in in charge of the movies, where they were just like, you know what? Teen boys. That's where we get all of our money. We need teen boys. Unfortunately, that's the next few movies that we have to deal with. The next movie that we're watching is The Great Mouse Detective. Okay, but I remember that one. I remember parts of that one. No, that's the one where, like, don't they crawl down from the rope on the... They, like, come over from another country and they're like, we're immigrants. (laughs) Funny enough, you are thinking of an American tale. Gosh darn it. Why am I always thinking... The Don Bluth movie. Uh, No. Which came out the same year as The Great Mouse Detective. Why am I always thinking of The American Tale? Because that is what Jeffrey Katzenberg is good at. He is good at releasing movies at the same time as other companies release their movies that have a very similar plot. Hold on. Is American Tale Disney? No. Oh, what? But you know how like a lot of times people talk about movies coming out like, oh, there's two volcano movies out. When Jeffrey Katzenberg went to DreamWorks, he released Ants the same year that Bugs Life came out. That's right. And I remember I was supposed to hate ants. Mm-hmm. I never actually saw it. Did you see it? Yeah, I did see it. Uh, did you I didn't like, like it? it. Not at all. Were you allowed to like it? Because I just remember like <laughs> at the time, like I think both my parents were working for Disney or something, and it was just like, ugh, that's bad. You know what the other one is? Um, Fishtail came out the same year as Finding Nemo. See, I remember that, but I thought you were about to say something about small soldiers. Do you remember that one? I do. That was at Universal. It came out, I thought it came out around the same time as like one of the Toy Stories, like Toy Story 2. Maybe Toy Story 2. But I also remember Small Soldiers was freaking creepy. Yeah. That movie's actually kind of violent. Yeah. (laughs) I remember I saw that movie and it terrified me for a long time. I just remember a lot of cross promotion with Burger King for that. We're starting to get to the point where it's like, I remember when movies came out because I remember the commercials I was watching at the time. Anyhow, we're coming up on the next few movies where we get The Great Mouse Detective coming out around the same time as An American Tale. And then after that, we have Oliver and Company that came out around the same time as All Dogs Go to Heaven. I gotta say, when we watched Rescuers, I gave it like a 3 out of 10. I need to give this movie like a 2 out of 10 And I need to move rescuers up to like a four or a five. I would do the same where I think I said rescuers was like a deep plus. This one is like D minus. It's not quite an F because I think as you pointed out where we're watching it, some of the backgrounds 
look very nice. Okay, something I totally forgot to mention that I wrote down in the beginning. When they first started the movie, there was this animation of this cauldron, and it was the most advanced beautiful animation that we've seen thus far. I thought for a second we were almost watching like Hercules, the way that they had created the cauldron. It almost looked like a vase, mm-hmm. the sort of like Hercules style vases. And I thought like, oh my gosh, this movie has taken a full step, like way step up from all the other animation we've seen thus far. But it was only that first minute and then the rest of it fell back to everything we knew. Um, I am curious to see how I feel about The Great Mouse Detective or Basil of Baker Street, but um, I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean... It can't get any worse than this. I was going to say, I this feel like... This is widely regarded as the worst Disney animated movie. I feel like Disney has referenced The Great Mouse Detective, whereas Disney has just said, like, let's pretend this didn't happen. I'm just really hoping the next one's better. I feel like I've seen the next one, whereas this one, I've never seen. (laughs) So I feel like that's a good step in the right direction. Yeah, I think this is the the last Disney animated movie that I have not seen. No, the next one that I have not seen is Meet the Robinsons. I haven't (gasps) seen that one. Wait, Meet the Robinsons is a Disney movie? Yes. The one where they're like... I have little arms and a big head. Don't even know what you're referencing. Wait, like I the T-Rex. The T-Rex that's like... Told you, I haven't seen Wait. it. Hold on. Is that the movie I'm thinking of? Yeah, that's a Disney movie. That's a Disney movie? Disney's Meet the Robinsons. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Where it's like a T-Rex and he's like, I have a big head and little arms. Well, I think we have a while to get to that one. We do. We got some poop to sling through first. Oh, gosh. I, I'm just like, I am i can't wait for Little Mermaid. I want to get past all of this and get back to, like, the Disney renaissance. Right. All right. So I'm going to give this one a 2 out of 10 at best. Yeah. 2.3 out of 10 for me. I mean, it's still trying. Oof. But it, this is a Frankenstein of a movie. Like, there's little bits and pieces of a movie that works in there, but they crammed in way too many elements and nothing paid off. And for the most part, any character that has agency just goes away and nothing means anything. Thank goodness we had good wine. Yes. At least we have that. And on that note. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>